to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold, refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove in discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There are some things in life that end so swiftly and so silently you don't even know they were there before they're gone. But that's not the seventh letter in the book of Revelation. It goes out, as we say, with, with a bang, with flourish and with energy and vigor and with force. How about the image of Christ himself here in our letter in verse 14 as he, as he addresses himself so forcefully and vigorously to his church. The amen, the faithful, the true, the ruler of creation. It is a combination of truth and faithfulness and power. How about the vivid image that I think is used nowhere else in Scripture here as Christ addresses Himself to the church and He says, what I know about you is your lukewarm apathy. And in fact, it's so bad, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Where else in Scripture does God speak this way? What do we make of all of this? As as Christ brings home... uh, His message to the churches was such a powerful punctuation mark. It's as if this letter to Laodicea, and of course it was addressed to a congregation with its own unique and providential circumstances, it seems to me that what this last letter does is grasp hold of the main threads of the, of the prior letters and it brings home the central and urgent message of Christ to his churches uh, with the force of a nail that penetrates a board with the, with the power of a hammer. And that message to the church is, I love threatening to discipline you. Unless you repent. I love to discipline you unless you repent. The letter to the church in Laodicea is a message of, of tough love, of threatening love, of severe discipline. And he does it because of the spiritual condition of the church. Just one of apathy, self-delusion, and hiding. Apathy, self-delusion, and hiding. That was the message to Laodicea, and that indeed is the message to the church in every generation and to every believer in every circumstance all throughout the age because this is perennially the problem, right, in the Christian life. It's so easy to lapse into apathy, self-delusion, and a lukewarmness. And so Jesus Christ brings a message of tough love to his church, and that message of tough love comes in two parts. There's a critique, and then there's a, a very forceful intervention. 
a critique and a very forceful intervention. And I want to think about that critique because if you were to to poll people who bear the name of Jesus Christ and you just said uh, something about lukewarmness, I, I bet most people, maybe as much as six or seven and ten believers, would say Laodicea if you were just to do a little word association. Lukewarmness and vomiting. They know it's somewhere in the Bible at least, right? But it's interesting about this language here and this verbiage because it is very much tied to the situation, the cultural circumstances of Laodicea. And you see here, one of the things that Jesus does is he reaches right down into the circumstances and the providential uh, uh, heart of, of, of the situation in Laodicea. And he says, that thing which all of you are aware of and know about it is something which is something like a heuristic device for you spiritually to take a look at yourself and to see you for how God sees you. And so as he begins to talk to them, notice here, the things that were to be written to the church in Laodicea is this. It begins in, in thermal terms. I, I see you and you are neither cold nor hot. Now, right away, that makes really little sense to us. It makes very little sense to us to speak about people in terms of their spiritual life as being cold or hot. He says, I know your works. That's how it begins here in verse 15. I know your works. I know your deeds. But you see here, um, Christ is speaking about them spiritually. He's talking about uh, the inner mechanisms and working of the heart. He says, I know you are. It's an assessment of person and of spirituality. And he says here two different times, neither cold, neither hot. And then he moves on to definition, verse 16. Here's what you are, lukewarm. I don't think that the idea of assessing them as lukewarm is about trying to figure out the median between freezing cold water and boiling water. The image is clear enough, particularly when you begin to notice the situation of Laodicea. Because Laodicea, and this is historical and geographically sound and true, Laodicea is surrounded by a couple of cities which were noted for their water. Uh, on one side of Laodicea, you would have the city of Colossae, and it was located on a high mountain plateau next to a mountain that went 8,000 feet in elevation up into the air. And out of the side of that mountain was a stream which got ice-cold water. And so the Colossians boasted about their water to everyone. It was refreshing. On the other side of, of Laodicea, well, what did you have but, but Hierapolis? Well, Hierapolis didn't have ice-cold water. It had just the opposite. It had what we would call uh, mineral hot springs. It, it was just a part of, of the nature of the soil, of the, of the deep, dark, rich clay soil in Hierapolis that, that, well, it was a resort town where the rich and the famous would go to sit in hot baths. It wasn't cold like uh, Colossae, but, but you know, it was worth something, right? Because when you sunk your aching old bones in that hot bath, you felt better. But, but Laodicea, <laughs> they were renowned for their terrible water. Archaeologists have discovered the remains of an aqueduct that transported water from several miles outside of town to the city, and one of the things that they've noticed is they did a, an analysis of the residue and remains in this aqueduct. It was that it was it was mineral rich, and it was just uh, gunk at the bottom of this thing, and it meant the water was warm and tepid, and well, it was awful. One of the things that you didn't do when you went to visit your cousins in Laodicea was drink the water. It wasn't refreshing. 
The point of it all is to say something of this nature is it's not about whether a person is cold or hot. Very often the preaching of this text is reduced to something like, well, I'd rather you just be an atheist if you weren't going to be on fire for Christ and Jesus Christian. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is is laying hold of an image which every single Laodicean would have been immediately aware of because they hated the vile taste of their water. And they knew something about this water is it was useless. That's the image here. The image is of lukewarmness. The image here is of water. As if no avail or help. And, you know, if, if, you're, if you're tired after a long jog, what you want is ice cold water. You don't want mineral hot baths. But, but six hours later, when your hips are, feel like they're dislocated and your joints are on fire, now you want the mineral hot springs because that's useful for something. But tell me anywhere in between when you want water that tastes like blah. tepid, lifeless water. And because of that, now I want you to see the image which Jesus uses here. So because. Notice how he connects his response to the way they be. He connects his response to the way they be. He says because of that. I don't know why we do this. It is not spit. In fact, I'm glad that the NAS has a, a footnote in the column to say vomit. Because if a word means vomit, by all means translate it vomit. Because believe me, each and every one of us here knows exactly how unpleasant that is. It is that awful feeling that begins to well up in your gut and then comes up into your mouth and that sense, that spidey-like sense comes upon you and you know, I better make a beeline for a trash can. It is the most revolting, repulsive feeling. That's exactly what Jesus Christ uses to talk to his church. And again, this is not found anywhere in Scripture. Jesus is speaking to the people of God. He is speaking to the church. He is speaking to professing Christians. He is speaking to you. And he's saying, this this condition is so wretched, I'm going to vomit you out. And you will wash down the sewer lines into the swamp of filth. That's an extremely harsh word. Isn't it? It's an extremely harsh word. But what it does do is get your attention, right? I don't think anybody who's sitting here hearing this is going to say, well, I don't think he's that bothered with us this morning. This must not be too bad. So what's the problem? That, that, is the, that is Christ coming to them and he's noting that there is a problem. There's this critique here. You're lukewarm and it's really bad. The rest of the text is very heavy on intervention. The rest of the text is very heavy on intervention. And the first part of the intervention now is challenge. And you can see that in verse 17. As Jesus says, because you say. Now it's very important that we grasp the force of our text here. Because the way it's built is in verse 17. We have the basis set forth for the challenge. And then as you go into verse 18, you begin to see the setting forth of the admonition. But we need to take a moment here to to take note of the basis of why Christ is challenging so forcefully. And we see three different things here that he specifies as he challenges the church. And it's all about their own outward projection of self. Notice the things here they say. Jesus uh, notes here, and you could just underline it, because you say, feel that? He's not saying this is what anybody else says. This is what you say about yourself. This is self-talk language. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. There's your problem. This is the external projection of the people of God there. And uh, what they say of themselves is, I am rich. Now, likely that um, that 
uh, that tags on to something that's important to know about the culture of Laodicea. It, it was a wealthy city. It was located on, on the corner of crossroads. It, it was a place for, for millionaires to live. It was a city of, of tremendous affluence. There was a thriving garment industry there. Uh, there was a world, they were, they were region renowned for a particular kind of wool which they spun there in use. It was a city of tremendous wealth. In fact, Laodicea was so wealthy that when the Roman politicians sought to gain control of the area by giving them money to rebuild after an earthquake, they said, no, we got this. And some citizen floated alone for the whole rebuilding of the public works in the city. And so what's going on here is it was a city that was steeped in wealth and it seems as if that shaded over into a sense of unbearable spiritual smugness. You see, sometimes it can be the case that people evaluate their relationship to God based upon their checkbook. And if business is good, and I'm growing in wealth and in stature and social recognition and things seem to be going good, then my relationship to God must be at the top. I must really be living the Christian life right. You know, when I used to play ball, if you if you caught a good hop when you're when you're out there fielding a ball, they said uh, you must be living right. That that's the sense here. You must be living right. See, they boast of their spiritual depths, and then you come into the second thing they say of themselves: "I have become rich." This is a shade different than the assertion of riches. What this is saying is that I've become rich and I earned it, and I earned it. The old-fashioned way, I worked for it. This is about self-reliance. See, this is a self-congratulation, and it explains the condition here. I'm rich because I got my money the old-fashioned way. I'm, I earned it. I am self-made, and that shades again over into the spiritual category. They've tried hard. They've applied the spiritual elbow grease to their life, and they've made something of themselves spiritually. There is a monument to their spirituality. The last is uh, perhaps the scariest thing. Um, I don't need anything. I don't need anything. This is the epitome of being spiritually self-reliant. To say to Jesus Christ, I don't need anything from you. This is... uh, Position of great spiritual insensitivity bordering on spiritual deadness. Their own sense of self was so drastically different that you see they're blind to it. And this is why Jesus says that they are lukewarm. And notice how he begins to unfold the, the inward reality in the second part of verse 17. And I think it's very important. He says, and you do not know. You see, he says on the one hand, here's what you say. And then on the other hand, he says, here's what you don't know. You say of yourself X, Y, and Z, but what you don't know is this. And so now what he does here is he gives them uh, a very thorough self-assess, a very thorough spiritual assessment. And, and there isn't a single term in here to be proud of. Uh, they said they were rich. They said they made themselves rich. And they said they didn't need anything. And Jesus says, here's your problem. You're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I think that's five terms, and I don't think any of them are good. To be wretched is the same word the Apostle Paul uses in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, after that very lengthy self-autobiographical discussion of his, of his very painful and real sorrowful struggle with sin. At the end of it all, he says, Wretched man that I am! That's a sense of sin. That's self-awareness spiritually, that, that I am fallen short of the glory of God, even as a believer. My life is wretched, and this is the Apostle Paul saying that. That's the very first thing that Jesus says of them. You're wretched. The second thing he says of them is that they are miserable, and it's built off a, word, a root from which we get the word mercy. And of course, mercy means the the administration of help to the pitiful. 
to the person that looks so down and out and desperate and ruined that the only way they are going to get up is with a hand out. Jesus says that's what you are. You think of yourself as self-made and rich and of having made yourself rich and wealthy, but he says the reality of it is you're pathetic. And then he says they're poor, which is to be relatively worthless. And then he says they're blind, which is about discernment and awareness. And then he says that they're naked. And this is an interesting expression because basically what it is saying is that you have this external countenance and appearance of self-confidence and self-assurance and self-righteousness about you. But he says the reality is that when the blazing red holy eyes of Jesus Christ penetrate through that exterior, what he digs down and finds in the depths of the heart is, is a life that is exposed before God as sinful and rebellious, and dangerous. What, what, what this is, basically, is something like a drill sergeant performing a company inspection. It's all the soldiers with their uniforms pressed and ironed. It's all of them standing out there in formation with their faces shaved as clean and close and tight as you can possibly get it. It's with the boots shiny and glossy and everybody's standing upright and, and, uh, and at attention. And then it's the drill sergeant coming by to each and every one of those soldiers who think that they did everything by the book. And then he begins to rip them to shreds for all the violations and then smoke them out. That's what Christ is doing here. He sticks the scalpel of the word of God and of the law deep into their heart and he peels back the layers of deception and what he says is everything that you pride yourself in is worth and, and what strikes us, I think, this morning, people of God, and what makes this all the more penetrating and real unto us and, and, and even thought-provoking is where are the great sins? Where are the great sins? Remember in Pergamum, Jesus complained that they retained people in their midst who were holding the teaching of Balaam. That's pretty bad. To Thyatira, he says, you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and leads Christ's bondservants astray so they commit acts of sexual immorality and idolatry. And what's the problem with Laodicea? A little bit too much self-congratulation. Really? Is it the worst thing of all that a Christian can think of themselves as is doing okay in the Christian life? Apparently. Apparently, because there's no stronger words in Scripture for the church. Apparently, there's nothing worse than you or a congregation thinking, we're doing pretty good in the Christian life. He unmasks the apathetic soul and what lies beneath it. And we say, how does someone get there? How does someone get there? How do we come to such a skewed and self-deluded sense of ourself? They say they are rich, self-reliant, needing nothing. Okay, Jesus says, I can go help other people. You got this down, Christian life? You're doing good. And yet Jesus says, no, you're weak, pitiful, blind, and naked. How do you get this way in the Christian life? And the only answer that's obvious is that they were hiding. They were hiding. They were hiding from the Word of God. They were hiding from the law of God. And this happens sometimes with Christians when they begin to choke the light and the truth of the Word of God out of their hearts, and they do it in a simple way. They say, there's this part of the Word of God that I'm really interested, that excites me, that I, that I want to live by, and that I want to talk about and think about, and then there's this part that I don't tend to like so much. And so all the way, all the while, I, I can redirect my thoughts away from the totality of the law of God and just put a spotlight on a few things and do so with a clear conscience and think, after all, I'm really making tracks in the Christian life. 
And then all of a sudden what happens is they become aware of the fact that they have become spiritually stunted and deluded and self-righteous because they've been hiding their sins in their heart. That's a dangerous thing to do. Become so fixated on a couple of things and think that that's the, the, ta- the path of righteousness that you forget the totality of the law of God. Next thing you know, you've become deluded and cold and lukewarm. And the only way out of it, people of God, is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way out of such self-delusion and disobedience and lukewarmness is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is the bitter pill of tough love. You see, the way Jesus Christ comes to this church and threatens it, and the way he challenges it, and the way he admonishes it, and the way he appeals to it, is to say, I love you. But let's not confuse that for a, a, an emotional, sort of hallmarky, syrupy love. This is Christ coming with authority, and this is Christ coming with discipline, and this is Christ coming with the thunders of heaven with him and saying, I'm trying to shake the earth underneath you so that you see your problem and that you hear. People of God, the way that we're to hear the letter to the Laodiceans this morning is to hear it as a letter directed to ourselves. The way to listen to the critique of Christ to the church is to say, is this me? Am I the one who's hiding sins in my heart? Have I become the person who's good at cleaning up the outside and communicating a sense of spiritual strength and yet inside is is an erosion of my soul? You see, the way we avoid getting to the point of Jesus Christ coming to threaten to vomit us out of His mouth is for us to be humble this morning and to hear Christ challenge us this morning and to ask ourselves if there's a hidden way in us in order that we may be humbled to repent and turn to Christ and seek grace. And so now Jesus transitions from that basis to now setting forth of the admonition of the appeal here. And notice the counsel that Christ gives here as we move forward in verse 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you might see. I just love the word here, and it's translated so well. It could be translated better. Jesus doesn't just advise. He says, I counsel. I counsel. This is, this is Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, coming alongside sinners, and he's saying, I counsel you. There's great change that needs to happen. He's coming alongside the broken patient. He said, we've already diagnosed some of the problems. And here's the remedy. And notice what the remedy is. The remedy is the purchase of divine grace. There's three things he calls upon them to buy. And the first thing he says to them to buy is refined gold. And what does that mean but a genuine and living and sincere faith? Peter talks about the the refining of our faith being like that of of precious gold which is being refined. It It is the refinement of faith which through trial and difficulty and pain, God takes that faith and He draws out its strength and He and He purges its impurities. That's what He's saying to them. What you need is a sincere and genuine and fruitful faith. And the next thing he says unto them is that they are to purchase white garments. And we begin to think about that image of white garments and we remember in the book of Revelation that this whiteness and these garments are associated with the holiness of Jesus Christ. Remember the self-assertion. I'm rich and it's not just that I'm rich. I've made myself this way. And what's more, I don't need anything. And Jesus says to them, what you really need is to be clothed. The way you are is a shame. It's a shame. You need to clothe yourself in the holiness of Jesus Christ. 
that you may not be revealed, that your self-righteousness will not be exposed for its vanity and its emptiness. Notice the last thing that he commends him to buy. He says, I save. I save. Again, this taps into something that is peculiar and specific and related to the culture of Laodicea because it was known in antiquity as a, as a place for the treatment of the eye. Because of the mineral richness in the region, it began to be a place that developed goop that you would uh, swab onto your eye that purportedly had some sort of healing powers, <laughs> generated the eyesight. Whether it did or didn't, I have no idea, but it was renowned for this. But isn't it ironic that the city, which was renowned for its skillfulness in restoring and rejuvenating sight, is the city which Jesus says spiritually needs to wipe on the salve so it can see. And I do think here, people of God, this is descending into the real depths of the problem with the Laodiceans. Due to the self-assertion and, and the self-righteousness, they're not able to see. They become spiritually insensitive to their, to their sins and to their life. And instead of seeing how they're fallen short of the glory of God, they're looking at the brokenness of their works and the brokenness of their life, and they're seeing silver linings around everything. And Jesus says, what you need to do is to see. You need to see that you need to be spiritually vigorous instead of being lukewarm. You need to see that you're weak and pitiful instead of self-reliant. You need to see that you're spiritually naked instead of righteous and holy. You need to see that you're blind as a bat in order that you might seek grace to see the truth. You see, when Christ uses this image of you need to buy, he's borrowing straight out of Isaiah 55.1. Remember how that text just sort of bursts forth from the prophecy of Isaiah and, and it pictures a merchant in the middle of a, of a gigantic fairgrounds and he's crying out to, to the hordes and to the masses. Come to the waters. You have no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. You see, the purchase of the grace that is needed to restore and rejuvenate the spiritual life, Jesus is saying, is free. The only cost involved to the purchase of this grace is humility. The only cost involved here is honesty and transparency and admitting we don't have it. That's it. The only cost is recognizing, to realize, and to be honest about the spiritual weakness. And it's to cast aside the arrogance and the deceit. You see, the reason Christians end up spiritually immature and impoverished is because they spend more time making sure other people think of them okay rather than realizing they're not okay and they need the help and the grace of Christ. That's how it ends up right there. Being more concerned of making people think they're okay than seeking the grace and the help of Jesus Christ to be made okay. So Christ comes to the church and uh, he challenges and then he brings admonition now in the next phase of this. And by the way, the, each part of the letter is, is a real, it's tough, right? I mean, these are hard things to say, but watch what he's going to say next. You, you come into verse 19 and you have admonition. And before I get to the admonition, I think the one thing that I want to underscore for us here this morning is the preface of the admonition, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Don't get to the therefore yet. That's the admonition. But just dwell on this statement here. Jesus Christ as, as the King and Head of the church, the Savior of the church, the Shepherd of the sheep here, bears His heart. And He says, here's the thing, I love you. What a remarkable thing to think about this morning. He's just called them lukewarm people that He would like to vomit out of His mouth 
who brag about their riches and need of nothing, who are in reality wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And of those people, Christ says, I love you still. The Christian life would be a hopeless life without Christ on the cross. It's not a religion. It's not just a religion. It's not just something you practice. Why would you practice this, by the way? Cramped little room. Nothing cool. Why? The reason why we practice this faith is because at the heart of our faith is Jesus Christ. The one who loved us and and died for us and gave himself for us and, and holds us in the palm of his hand. And he says, I love you this much that I'm going to come alongside you and put the bullhorn of the law into your ear so you listen. Notice this great expression of love and ask yourself if a parent wouldn't say this to their own child. I love you, therefore I I reprove and discipline you. If if you're a parent and you're not reproving and disciplining, you don't love your children. Young children, if your mom and your dad reprove and discipline you, you need to give them the biggest hug you can give them and say, thank you for loving me. I know you're not going to say that in that way, but that's the truth. I mean it. If you don't learn discipline now, you'll never learn it. It's, it's awful to watch somebody in their late 30s or 40s or later who've ruined their life because of absolutely no discipline. They're not going to find it then. They're just going to find a broken life. Your parents love you. They discipline you. And we know it's good for us. Well, Jesus is saying the same thing to us here this morning. He's saying, because I love you, I reprove you. And I discipline you. I'm reminded here of the great words of the preacher in Hebrews chapter 12 where he takes this very same word and he plucks at Hebrews or Proverbs 3.12 and he says, those whom the Lord love, he disciplines. That, that is the thing that Jesus is trying to communicate here before he sticks another needle in. And it's painful, I get it, but, but, but the point of it is, is to hear the exhortation, the admonition which follows with this, this, this blast of the trumpet of the gospel. I love you, therefore, be zealous and repent. Here's the tough love of Christ we've already been speaking about. Be zealous, be, be spiritually vigorous. Uh, fan the gift and the soul into a flame. You're lukewarm. The, the embers are, are, are dying and they're going out. He's saying, fire it up. Cultivate a, a godly and a righteous and a holy zeal for Christ. And, and really what is the heart now of the admonition is repent. And, and here's a Greek term which means do a U-turn. Do a U-turn. He's examined their hearts and He's exposing the hidden sin of their hearts, the wretchedness, the misery, the poverty, the blindness, the nakedness. And Christ says, turn away from all of that. Turn away from the self-assurance. Turn away from the self-deception. Turn away from the self-righteousness. Repent. I love how the Canons of Dort puts this. When it says, as long as we remain in this body, we can be sure that from this body spring forth daily sins of infirmity and blemishes cleave even to our best works. Today, as long as you're alive today, what will spring forth from this body is sin. Tomorrow, if God gives you tomorrow, what will cling to your life tomorrow is sin. 
if you make it back to this place next Lord's Day to worship Him, what will be clinging to you still and proceeding from you still is sin. And it will be that way every day until you die. And what's even more poignant about the expression the canons, it says, blemishes cleave even to our best works. You know, we really like somebody to say to us, don't we? You're not one of those kind of Christians. You're one of the good kinds, aren't you? You ever had that? You're, the, you're one of those kinds of Christians that really believe something. It's obvious that you believe something. Look how you're raising your family. Look how you live your life. Every single one of us, I know, loves to hear that. Until we remember that blemishes cleave even to the best things that we do. And then we're supposed to be repenting even the best things that we've ever done in the Christian life. That's when we begin to understand what Jesus is saying here. Repentance is a daily call. Repentance is a awareness and realization that I've fallen short the glory of God and I need the blood of Jesus Christian life every bit as much as I needed to cover the sins of my non-Christian life before I came to Christ Jesus is seeing here the way out of the condition of Laodicea is to wake up every day and to know that you've fallen short already and that repentance is the pathway for today And then if you're given tomorrow, it's the pathway for tomorrow. And if you're given the next day, it's the pathway for tomorrow. And again and again. That's the only way we will be delivered from lukewarmness. He says to the church, be vigorous. Maybe through repentance. But certainly repentance. And now we come into the heart of the text that uh, virtually every believer knows, and maybe even many unbelievers know, right? Because it's been so misapplied. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come to him and I'll him with me. And before we get into the controversial element of the text, which there should be zero controversy at all in this text, I just remind you here that the point of all of this here is Jesus comes to his church now after he's challenged, after he's admonished, after he said just uh, awful things about the terms of the critique, which was spot on and thoroughly righteous and, and pointed. He said, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. I'm going to vomit you out. Now he says, I've given you what to do. I've told you how to be, and now he says, here's my appeal to you. Here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to add grace upon grace upon grace to you as a believer. And the image of that grace upon grace upon grace is bound up in that phrase in the latter part of the verse, I will come in and I will dine with him. This is an image of the most deep and and sound and substantial fellowship with Christ. This is a profound image. If we didn't get lost in the first part of the verse, we would be staggered by this. Christ says, I'm going to come and I'm going to sit down at your kitchen table with you. And we're going to talk about how your week went. I'm going to listen to your needs. And you can pour your heart out to me and I'll listen and I'll be empathetic and I'll give you grace. That's the heart of this text. But, but the problem is, right before that, there has been a problem with the interpretation. So some people hear this, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens, then I will come in. And they say, see, this is obviously Jesus talking about unbelievers. Really? I don't see any unbelievers in the text. I see professing Christians in the text. 
But we've all heard it. Well, I trust maybe not all of us, but, but many of us have. It's after the sermon when the lights get turned down low and, and the melody mood music begins to just crank up a little bit, you know, and, and here's the pastor getting the finish here. I am standing at the door of your heart. I love you. I have a wonderful plan for your life. I want all of the best for you. I see you in all of your sin and your brokenness and your ruinness. All I want to do is bring everything good to you. That's why I'm standing here. And I'm just knocking. See, I can't bring any of this that I want to give you unless you open the door. And all of a sudden it turns into a fantastic appeal and the and the theology of all of a sudden has turned into some sort of decisional where Jesus Christ is standing on the outside of your heart and the only way He can happen is if you let Him. People of God, that's not what's in view here. This text is not about evangelism. It's about church discipline. It is about church discipline. Jesus Christ has just challenged them. He's just admonished them. He has just warned them. He has just called them to repentance. And He's saying now, you who have a regenerate heart, you who profess My name, you who have the Word in the depths of you, you who have the Spirit of God abiding in you, listen! And respond. You see, the heart of this text is not about an altar call. The heart of this text is about consolation to the broken believer. This text is about assurance. This text is saying to the Christian who's sitting here this morning, you don't know how badly I've ruined my Christian life. This is to the believer who is sitting here this morning who is saying to themselves, if you only knew the sin. It's to the person who thinks that if they repent, there may just not be a restoration. And Christ is saying to that person by way of appeal, I've given you ears to hear. I've given you eyes to see. I've given you a new heart. I've given you a clear, clean, new record. Turn away from your sins and there will be grace on top of grace. The relationship which has been broken down because of your sin and your disobedience and your rebellion can be restored. It's about assurance. It's about comfort. It's an appeal. So people of God, as Jesus calls us to our spiritual senses to, to become a penitent people, a humble people, a people who assess themselves truly and accurately according to the law of God as, as having sinned and fallen short of His glory, who, who know as we confess with the confession that from this body spring forth daily sins of infirmity. Who people who are even proud of the of being good Christians last week. It's to those who've come under an awareness of their sin. And it's to assure them of the mercy of Christ's love. It's just a different image to say the very same thing that Jesus said in verse 19. I love you. And we show our response back by repenting, trusting, and opening that door to Christ and enjoying the unfolding of His grace to us. People of God, as um, we come to the conclusion of this text and uh, this text of seven letters, so what grips me is the, the tough love. What grips me this morning is the tough love. Christ loves His church. He loves us. He loves you. And to prove that, He exercises tough love. So if the Word of God 
feels challenging and discouraging to you this morning, it's okay. In fact, if it didn't feel challenging and a bit discouraging, rewind the tape. It was designed to do that, not by me, but by Christ. You know what you're doing in your life. You know where your profession and your words don't match your deeds. You know your attitudes. You know how you treat people. You know the same old sins you keep returning to. You know how you keep breaking your life up by committing the same sins and yet you keep doing them. You know that this morning. There's no way to cover it over and to hide it and feel it's okay. That's what Christ is saying. Don't do that. That's how you end up like Laodicea and lukewarmness. Declining in vigor. Jesus is saying, you can do that for a while, like the Laodiceans did, but the day of reckoning will come. And the reason the day of reckoning will come is because Christ loves you, and he will not allow you to go on this way. And so when we hear the thunders of the law this morning coming from the mouth of of Christ, we need to humble ourselves and say, thank you. I needed the correction. I needed the love. I needed to be directed away from my sin. You see, the pathway to spiritual health and maturity and vigor is not hiding. It's repenting. And when we do that, what Jesus does is he comes in and he sits at the table and he causes heaven's mercies to overflow. And the way we get there is by embracing this message of the tough love of Christ. When we do that by faith and obedience and humility, the promises of God in Christ are amen and they are yes to us. And so, people of God, I leave you with the admonition of the sovereign Shepherd Christ. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.